The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you now to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Hosea. We come now to the end of our series, which have begun a series in the Minor Prophets. And you'll recall that this book begins with the shocking comparison, comparing Hosea's wife, Gomer, in fact, comparing Israel and her unfaithfulness to the Lord to the scandalous sin and rebellion and betrayal of the prophet's wife. Each of these brides trade away love and security from their husbands in favor of idols, false gods, only to suffer abuse and abandonment. In our text tonight, Israel faces imminent judgment. In fact, at this time, exile would only be a year or less away for the northern tribes. And for them, there was no turning back. There would be no deliverance from exile. And yet, the seeds of hope that lied beyond exile are here in our passage. In parallel to that message of hope, there is a heart cry of God to the southern tribe of Judah, hoping that perhaps they might turn and repent But of course, as history tells us in the book of Jeremiah, just over a century later, Judah to the south would would face the same predicament as Israel and Samaria to the north. Our text focuses on Israel's deception towards God, towards one another, towards themselves. And in this passage, we find a comparison between the nation as a whole to their forefather, Jacob, whose name meant deceiver. As we move along, we'll consider how it was that even forefather Jacob learned devotion to the Lord through many trials. And in this passage, the Lord beckons the people of old and us as well to put away worldly ways and return to him. We find rest in the home of he who is devoted to his people for our good and his glory. Please follow as I read, beginning in Hosea chapter 11, verse 12. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, the house of Israel with deceit, and Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind. He pursues the east wind all day and multiplies lies and violence. He makes a treaty with Assyria and sends olive oil to Egypt. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he grasped his brother's heel. As a man he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. 
he found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name of renown, but you must return to your God. Maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. And now skipping over to the final chapter, chapter 14, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously, that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless, find compassion. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. Men will dwell again in his shade. He will flourish like the grain. He will blossom like a vine, and his fame will be like the wine from Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a green pine tree. Your fruitfulness comes from me. Who is wise? He will realize these things. Who is discerning? He will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. This is the word of the Lord our God. And, O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Shortly after winning the 2006 Tour de France Bicycling Championship, Lancaster County native Floyd Landis was accused of using illegal performance-enhancing drugs, a violation, and so was stripped of his title. Then for the better part of four years, Mr. Landis had a public posture of complete denial of having done anything wrong up until this past May, when he made full confession, admitting that he had both cheated in his sport and had led deeds of deception publicly. One can only speculate how this man, with his Mennonite background that emphasizes integrity and truthfulness, must have found it quite difficult to own up to his wrongdoing. It would seem that self-denial and self-deception made it almost impossible, difficult for him to acknowledge the truth, to own up to his own failings. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Friends, we live in a culture of deceit. Athletic greatness has been tarnished in recent times by the use and the abuse of performance-enhancing drugs. Even the personal lives of athletes like Tiger Woods reveal how deceit goes deep into 
relations even off the field. Public confidence in our elected leaders has waned with cynicism expressed in low ratings of approval, oftentimes in response to gross abuses and misuses of power in public funds. Cheating on tests. Lying on resumes are commonplace in schools and the job market. Just recently, banks had to hold off on mortgage foreclosures due to widespread evidence of fraud. Even many megachurches are under scrutiny and an investigation from reports of misusing donated funds. Where is the integrity? Where is the honesty? Where is the transparency? We have a crisis of deception. Jesus warns in Matthew chapter 12, but I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they say. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Those deeds done in the darkness will be brought out into the light. Every word spoken in private will be shouted from the rooftops. Are you ready for that great and dreadful day of exposure? Are you prepared? Sadly, the nation of Israel was ill-prepared. They were in a state of denial about the nature of their predicament. They practically ignored the Assyrian threat, refusing to heed the prophet's warnings to turn and repent. They took a light-hearted approach towards their sin of Baal worship, oppression of the poor, gluttony and indulgence, and their failure to worship Yahweh. The Lord's day of reckoning was at hand. Israel was ripe for judgment. She would be utterly destroyed. And yet not all was hopeless. The Lord sought to get Judah's attention from the exile for sister to the north, Israel. Sadly, in Jeremiah's ministry, over a century later, his word of prophecy would fall on deaf ears in Jerusalem, just as Hosea's had in Samaria. As we come to find in Scripture, hope for God's people would not come from exile, not through exile, but far beyond after the exile. When the Lord would send a Redeemer, who in devotion to the Lord our God would deliver his people from their deceptive ways. Hosea 12 focuses on a message communicating the very deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 11, verse 12 and following, the Lord accuses Ephraim of surrounding and attacking the Lord with lies and deception. The picture almost illustrates Joseph being attacked by his brothers with lies, manipulation, and treachery as they sell him into slavery. The people of Israel are foolish. They are self-deceived in their efforts to wiggle out of of a hopeless situation, whether it's making a treaty with Assyrians 
or revamping trade with Egypt to the south. It's a mere chasing after the wind. The Lord longs that his people would humble themselves, cry out to them for relief as they had done in ancient days as slaves in Egypt. Now, as an independent nation, they are proud, worldly, trusting in themselves, looking to their wealth to save them. Verse 7 condemns the merchants who are abusive, who cheat their customers with dishonest scales, that which the Lord despises. In verse 8, they arrogantly boast about how their great wealth will somehow deliver them. The wealthy will be quite mistaken on the day of wrath, for the Lord cannot be bought. May your money perish with you, judged Peter of Simon the sorcerer in the book of Acts. And such men try to hide behind wealth and performance. Others hide behind good deeds or pedigree, thinking that somehow their sin can be hidden from the Lord's sight, but nothing disguises it. No amount of good works, no amount of heritage, the Lord's piercing gaze will always find out your sin. There is only one way to cover sin. That's through the perfect blood of atonement. Israel's forefather, Abraham, got that message. As he was commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac, and his son Isaac was spared by a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket, sacrificed in his place. Unfortunately, that message seemed to be lost on the young Jacob, Abraham's grandson. Jacob, it seems, thought he could haggle with God. He was good at manipulating others and getting his way. And so Israel here is compared with their forefather, Jacob. He who grasped the heel of his brother Esau in the womb and so received the name grasping the heel, a mnemonic, a comparison, deception, and trickery. As we know the story, Jacob as a young man, took advantage of his brother Esau, who came in famished from the hunt, starving, asking for a bowl of soup, and Jacob exploited the situation, bargaining, making his brother agree to sell him his firstborn birthright for a cup of soup. Later, Jacob takes advantage, collaborating with his mother, Rebekah, pulling the wool over his father Isaac's weak eyes. So he fools his blind father, disguised as Esau, and so receives his brother's blessing. Consequently, Jacob will have to run, flee for his life to escape the wrath of Esau's vengeance. Jacob takes up refuge with his uncle Laban, falls in love with the lovely Rachel and works for her seven years but with poetic justice. A deceiver is deceived. Jacob awakens the morning after his wedding day to find that he is now wed to the unsightly Leah rather than Rachel. For the next 13 years, Jacob and Laban will battle it out, wit against wit, trying to outdo one another. And finally, by a great deliverance, the Lord 
orchestrates an exodus of Jacob and wives and children, all of their livestock, they escape under hot pursuit of Laban, who is stopped and prevented from bringing harm to Jacob by the Lord's hand. Jacob reaps the Lord's blessings and yet lives by his schemes until finally he is stuck between a true rock and a hard place. On the outskirts of the promised land, he learns that his brother Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men, a threatening prospect. He cannot go forward and he cannot return from the way which he came. And Jacob, it seems, for the first time in his life, cries out to the Lord, begging for mercy. The Lord responds, sending a mysterious man who takes Jacob to the mat and wrestles with him until dawn, until finally Jacob prevails a testimony to persistent prayer and determination to not let go until he has secured the Lord's blessing. Jacob receives more than that. He receives a new name, a new identity. Israel struggles with God. And yet when he leaves that wrestling ground, he walks with a limp because the Lord has taught him a powerful lesson taking away his pivot joint, taking away his strength, that he may learn to humbly trust in the Lord's strength, whose power is made perfect in weakness. It seems from our text that Israel is in a similar spot to her forefather and namesake Jacob. Like her ancestors, she lives by her wits with deception. Seeking to get the upper hand of her neighbor, she's guilty of manipulating the gods and the nations, serving idols, making treaties. She likes control. Israel hates to submit. Trust and obedience is beyond her. Jacob had pursued wealth and women only to be ensnared and to be outwitted and humbled, to be exiled and to walk with a lame leg after painful trial. So it is with the Lord and his people. The Lord is good at exposing blind spots. The Lord knows how to uproot seeds of deception and breaks his people to make them devoted not no longer to sin, but to the Lord their God. You and I bear resemblance to our forefathers. We like control. We're tempted to manipulate God by our prayers and by our deeds. We have that dreaded entitlement mentality in us. We begrudge hardship. And we are good like a child trapping ourselves, falling into the deceitfulness of sin. The author of Hebrews offers this insightful observation in Hebrews chapter 3. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
how we underestimate the power and the deception of sin. A hardened heart is a very dangerous spiritual condition. In life, we may not get what we want. And so we refuse to believe God's promises. The Lord may take something precious from us. A spouse. A child. A job. Financial security. And so we punish God in return. Suffering and all kinds of hardships tempt us to go our independent way, to believe the lies of the world and the devil. We are shockingly vulnerable to the siren calls that beckon us to steer our ship to the shores, to crash upon the rocks of self-indulgence, self-fulfillment, self-righteousness, and self-gratification. Friends, sin is deceptive. We think that we are better than we truly are. We console ourselves that we can repent later. We misuse grace. We make excuses for our sin, vowing to deal with it later. But friends, without a cross, there is no redemption. Without repentance, there is no genuine faith. Never underestimate the power of of sin. Battle with it. Take it to the mat like our forefather Jacob. Remember that sin desires to have you, but you must master it. You must let God uproot the pride, the self-righteousness, the self-pity, and all of the excuses, for it is better to limp into heaven than to leap and to bound into hell. Sin has deceptive way of hiding, in which way the only the searchlight of God's word can expose. So yes, judgment is coming, as it was in Israel's day. And there are only two ways to pay for that sin. At the cross or on Judgment Day, which is to come. Well, in this passage filled with judgment, as you scan through the rest of chapter 12 and chapter 13, in the midst of all this judgment, there are two key pillars, like Boaz and Jachin. In chapter 12, verse 9, and chapter 13, verse 4, a pronouncement of the prophet The word of the Lord, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. The people Israel who have been deceived and enslaved by the Egyptians were rescued and delivered by their faithful God. And he who is faithful in the past can be trusted to be faithful to redeem in the future. And there was an enemy much greater than the Assyrian threat then the Babylonians and the Egyptians of old. Chapter 13, verse 14, if you turn there, look, to hear the promise of the Lord. He says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? 
like Gomer, Israel deserves abandonment, slavery, even death. But the Lord, who is rich in compassion, is determined to ransom, to buy back his people. As Hosea had paid the ransom price for Gomer, so the Lord himself will pay that infinite cost himself, that debt that you and I could never pay. And there is only one who could overcome the power of death, even as he paid the infinite price for our ransom, our mighty champion and redeemer, Jesus Christ. You know, in Greek mythology, the god Hades, it says, ruled the underworld of the dead, from which there was no escape past the terrible three-headed dog, Cerebus. It was said that Greeks would not even utter the name Hades for fear that, he, that they might arouse his attention and he would come for them prematurely. Yet in their heroic stories, the mighty hero Hercules, only he was the one who had broken in and rescued somebody from Hades' clutches. However, in the Greek myth, this strong man was not able to save any others. And he too eventually returned to Hades to remain there forever. Scripture says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We know that death is a defeated enemy. Jesus Christ has prevailed against Hades. He has overthrown the gates of hell. He has bound the strong man and set the captives free. Friends, you and I face the greatest enemy, death, with genuine hope. We do not despair like the world, but rather we face it with great resurrection joy. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 offers this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The Apostle Paul will go on with a great climax, celebrating the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, through that victory, we walk into the doorway into fellowship with the living God. And so it's with that great hope, that promise that is in seed form throughout the Old Testament, that in places like chapter 12, verse 6, the Lord can beckon his people to return to me. For I am slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Here he calls upon his people to maintain love and justice and to wait upon the Lord. In Lamentations chapter 3, the prophet says, The Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. The people of old had to wait. They had remembrance of God's great redemption out of Egypt, but they had to wait for the greater act of redemption 
at the hands of their great Redeemer who would fulfill the promise of God and defeat death once and for all and pay their ransom, a final atoning sacrifice for sins. Friends, you and I on this side of the cross are also waiting, looking back upon that great act of redemption, secured for us forever, sealed by the Holy Spirit when we trust Christ by faith, and yet we await for the full consummation of that promise, for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the resurrection of the dead. But the time is now to return, to return to him. And that returning requires devotion. Hosea chapter 14 provides us a picture of such devotion. It begins with a turning away from those worthless created things that offer no genuine hope or meaning in life. Such devotion is a daily return to the source, the fount of living water for life, joy, and fulfillment. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 14 offer a model prayer, asking the Lord for forgiveness, that he might accept us, that we might be restored in proper worship before the Lord our God. And such devotion acknowledges idolatry, renounces all false gods and false loyalties. To remember that God alone is a compassionate father. The idols are brutal tyrants, but the Lord our God is gracious and merciful. You know, the only way for deceivers to become people of devotion is to come to the end of themselves and to yield all to the Lord Almighty. Jacob was promised much wealth, and he reaped that promise. Jacob returned to the promised land with a 15-passenger van load full of wives and children, many moving vans full of livestock and wealth, and yet Jacob was running on fumes living by his own strength and wits. And so God finally outwitted him, denied him his natural strength, forcing him to learn to live in weakness, trusting in the Lord Almighty. Jacob met the Lord face to face. He was given a new name, a new identity. It took the Lord to remove the chip from Jacob's shoulder. Jacob finally, in the Lord, had nothing to prove. He was God's man. His ego was crucified at the Jaboke River. He was ready to follow another. He finally, in the Lord, found acceptance and security and the one who had never given up on him. We see his likeness in the apostle Peter who lied and betrayed, and yet was restored by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find that same likeness in ourselves, who are faulty of tongue, who are deceptive of intention and motivation. Jacob, who was a proud and deceitful man, was pruned and purified and made, as Hebrews offers 
this touching and endearing final tribute to the man of faith who blessed Joseph's sons as he worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff, a man who finished well in true devotion to the Lord. Jacob was made wise through suffering and hardship. The end of our book, chapter 14, verse 9, invites us, who is wise? He will realize these things, the ways of the Lord are right, the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Rebels remain devoted to self and become trapped by wealth, fame, and power, mere chasing after the wind, but the wise turn away and return, heed the beckoning call of Jesus Christ. As it says in chapter 14, that they might splendor like an olive tree, might flourish like the grain, blossom like the vine. And truly we will blossom as we learn to abide in the true vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing, says the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in such weakness that the Lord makes us strong. To turn away from the world's deceits and devote ourselves to walk in the righteousness of he who laid down his life to ransom us from the deceitfulness of sin, to redeem us from the curse of death, which has been swallowed up in mighty victory. In one of the great scenes of classic literature, Victor Hugo and Les Miserables writes of Jean Valjean, a thief caught with stolen valuables from the church. In that scene of confrontation with priests and the police, the compassionate priest insists to the police that these goods were a gift to Valjean. Trapped in deception, Valjean is set free by an act of grace. It changes his life. Jean Valjean devotes himself to becoming an honest man, to utilize industry to help others and even raise a girl onto maturity. But then in one of the greatest tests of his new faith, he returns evil with good, showing grace to his bitterest enemy when he had the opportunity to make the end of him. Only grace can set us free from deception and set us on a new course, a life of devotion. That grace is available to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. He beckons you to turn away from a life of deception, from the ways of the world, and return to him who receives his people with open arms. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you that you are the friend of sinners, that you have pursued deceivers and liars, and you have opened wide your arms to receive us. That the power of the cross is the power to crush pride and unbelief, to bring trust and humility, wisdom, joy, and devotion. I pray for us tonight that we would be a people who would turn away from the old ways and return to you, the Lord our God. 
Make us a people of devotion for your honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.